This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Wahlburgers. Franklin, why did we go to Wahlburgers today? We went to Wahlburgers to get the Impossible Burger and try it out. But it was impossible to get the Impossible Burger, was it not? Ironic. Ironic, Mr. Renzo. Well said, my friend. Well said. Yes. There's a shortage of Impossible Burgers because all the hype. I mean, it's this thing, Beyond Burger, Impossible Burger, everybody is falling over one another to get their hands on these things. And for those of you that just picked up the little factoid, we have Joe Renzel in the pod room this very day. Here today, sunny Orlando. Wouldn't miss it for the world, guys. All right, so we didn't have any any Impossible Burgers, but we did order a truckload of food from Wahlburgers around the pod table. Mr. Renzel, what was your menu item du jour? I went for the BBQ burger, which has a little jalapeno in it, which I like. I like a little spicy. Plus, of course, you gotta get some tots on the side. The tots, that was an, an impressive display of tater tots, I must display. Mr. Coley, what did you have? Let me just lead with the tots. Yes. I ordered the tots first and then I considered my burger. I went with the, uh, what, what was it called? The Dorchester? The, 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 it was the, Dorchester. It was the OFD. It was the originally from Dorchester. Dorchester Mass. It was good. It's like a Swiss burger. you got to make sure that, that you get the wall sauce for the tots and the burger. There. That, that really that, that puts it over the well top. Well said, Chandler. And Carson, what did you have? Uh, same as Coley. We doubled wow. up on the old OFD. You guys are like twins. I had the Hour Burger. I don't know why it's called the Hour Burger, but it's the Hour Burger. But I had, I tried their onion rings. It was the only part of the meal that was underwhelming was that. There's ultra-thin onion rings. I'm that, an onion ring guy. punishment for not ordering tater tots. Yeah, that's so what I, happens. I stole when, enough of Rinzel's tater tots. I was fine. When you don't, that box was checked. When you don't order tater tots, they punish you. So, so are we, are, are we, are we going to go get Impossible Burgers, or are we just going to stick gonna to... Keep, we're going to keep trying. Yeah. We're going to keep trying. We've hey, tried. Hey. This is the third time we've tried for the Impossible Burger, and we can't get it. So it's worth mentioning that announced this week, by the end of the year, these burgers, Impossible Burgers, will be appearing in 7,200 Burger Kings, 1,000 Carl's Juniors, and hundreds of other fast food joints around the country. And Axios here, it says, Americans created the hamburger. We're so proud of it. It is it is a cuisine created here, and now we have created the fake hamburger. And they're saying they're worried about it. They're worried that the fake hamburger is going to take over the real hamburger. That was what they were getting. I will do my part to maintain the status quo. For yeah, America. Dude, dude. For America. For America. That's right. Yeah. Beef, beef farmers of Texas, don't worry, I got your back. I'm on the job. Let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go supersize. We need a political revolution. And we will make America great again. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, election time is just around the corner, not 2020, but 2019, in five states. And we'll discuss both the local and national implications and how the industry issues are playing into the mix. And California and the Trump administration are at war again, this time over independent worker classification. We'll talk with attorney Norman Leon, who represents the IFA on matters like this, and he'll sort it all out for us. And we'll also be joined by Mark Friedman from the U.S. Chamber, who will give us the latest and greatest on the EO1 pay data companies need to submit by September. We'll talk about those stories and wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my line partners, Franklin Coley, Carson Chandler, and in the home studio, Mr. Joe Rizzo himself. Here to please, guys. Here to please. Ready to get it rolling. I know I left you alone last week. It's pretty last couple weeks. You've been pretty, pretty boring shows, to be honest with you. Sorry. But now we got it. Now we can up it. Phenomenal. Now we can up the game. Bring it back. Aloha, Joe. Aloha, Joe is in the, is in the building. So, fellas, we keep thinking about, you know, the election in 2020 and president's re-election, and we've already kind of started the jousting. We see all the Democratic candidates lining up, but we forget that there are some important elections in this calendar year in 2019. In fact, there are very important elections. Five states will have uh, some combination of gubernatorial and legislative races, and in some places, you know, issues that matter to our industry are front and center in those races. I'm sure they will be in New Jersey. We know we're going to talk about Louisiana a little bit. Franklin, what's your take on the, the 2019 Landscape. Which were the so? What are the states we're watching? We're watching Louisiana, Mississippi, New Jersey, Virginia, and Kentucky's the Kentucky, other one. Kentucky. That's right. The governors of Louisiana, Mississippi, and Kentucky are up, and we'll have legislative races uh, in those states as well as Virginia, and New Jersey. So, what do you? What do you? Everywhere what, except in Kentucky. What are you? What are you watching, Franklin? What are you? So waiting for? the biggies. The biggies I'm watching are the Virginia legislative races and the Kentucky governor's race. Those are the most interesting ones for a number of different reasons. Uh, Virginia is obviously a swing state. Kentucky, not necessarily a swing state, but 
I think it is an early indicator of Trump support in those kind of old manufacturing slash industrial states. Kentucky is not Michigan, but it has a similar kind of political makeup and feel to it. And so those are the states that I'll be watching. Virginia, because the House and the Senate are very narrowly split and, and either chamber could flip. And that's obviously going to have a tremendous impact in that state. Yeah, Virginia was really interesting this cycle. Obviously, there's a lot of political scandal that everybody's paying attention to. It's been Pretty interesting how that kind of has disappeared uh, without a lot of, uh, you know, without any members leaving office and things that you probably would expect it. But the narrative before all that happened was that they were going to come into the cycle and they were so close and they were possibly going to flip that a lot of the stuff, uh, policies that our listeners pay attention to, of course, around minimum wage and paid leave and other things, but then other issues um, around, you know, energy and, and other topics there was kind of this mentality that, well, if you don't, if you're not going to get on board with this, we're going to flip and we'll we'll get our we'll get our bill done from a Democratic perspective next cycle. Not so sure that's as set in stone as it once was, but um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in such a close margin with both chambers. I'm watching the Virginia legislative race, uh, races as well as, as you, but for a different reason. I think that Virginia is on a fairly quick trajectory and a long-term trajectory turning into a solid blue state over the next five to ten years. And I think this will be a, a significant inflection point on that journey. And I would predict that the morning after the election that both those chambers have picked up two or three Democratic seats and they are in Democratic hands and Virginia is a blue state. That would be my prediction here. May the ninth year of our Lord, 2019. Uh, the other one I'm watching closely is Louisiana. And I'm surprised Mr. Coley didn't list that on his top because the Democratic governor up for re-election in a red state and one of the most pressing issues has been this fight between the city of New Orleans and the governors and the state, if you will, over tourism taxes and the role that the Convention and Tourism Bureau plays in the city of New Orleans and those taxes raised and should they stay local and go into state coffers. And so the restaurant, hospitality, tourism industry has been center stage and probably the, the one or two, three biggest issues in the state and have been, been playing out over the course of this legislative session. So I'm watching Louisiana governor's race. I think it's going to be fascinating and it has direct implications for our industry. I'm betting on the um, the incumbent in Louisiana. John Bell Edwards, a Democrat, right? To be reelected, even though it's a very red state, there's not a really, I guess, legit um, Republican challenger at this point. There's that has stepped up. There are some that have decided to not enter the fray. And there's still more than two months until filing. So you could have a Republican get in, you know, August the 8th or 9th filing deadline and still run a very strong campaign. So this thing is far from over. But I think I think the current governor is in a very strong position, and I would be somewhat surprised if he is knocked off. He is a very conservative Democrat. He matches kind of the uh, the culture of Louisiana. He is not a New York or New Jersey Democrat by any means. California Democrat. Joe Rizzo. I like revisiting Kentucky a little bit just because you've got, you know, the most unpopular governor in this in the country in Bevin. He's, you know, pulling at something like thir- low 30s, yep. um, really trying to attach himself to Trump from a Republican side. This isn't really about policy for our listeners. This is more about politics from my perspective. You've got him going up against the likely Democratic leader who's the current AG, you know, historical Democrat family in the state, son of a former two-term governor. Obviously, the politics have probably changed in the state over the over the years, but still a formidable opponent. Governor Bevin's going to, like I said, attach himself to Trump. That should be an indication, you know, for 2020. And also, you know, for Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader. Yeah. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but he might have a problem later on down the line. So Kentucky... I think I will be watching Kentucky more than any other race. Bevin was Trump before Trump was Trump. Bevin was the front edge, the early indicator that there was something going on. Did he lose a lot of money in the 90s, too? Probably. Okay. Not as much, though. Okay. More in the thousands, not billions. Okay. There, was so, there was something going on in the electorate. He ran against Obamacare. He primaried Mitch McConnell and lost the previous cycle and then ran in a large Republican field. Wasn't expected to emerge as the Republican candidate did was considered kind of a wingnut, a tea, tea Party kind of wingnut, and then upset a very popular Democrat attorney general that was expected to go in office. Republicans swept that night minus one seat, and he's running against 
Bevin, but swept from governor down to dog catcher. And that really was kind of, you know, hindsight being 2020, that was really, really kind of foreshadowed what was what was to come. So for that reason, I would say Bevin nationalized that governor's race. This governor's race now is being nationalized again. I, I look at this and you don't want to put too much weight in these midterms elections and what they're going to mean in 2020. But I would look at this because this Kentucky is similar to some of those other states that Trump flipped, the so-called blue wall states. I would watch this because it is going to give us a sense of how Trump is going to perform in 2020. I think that's spot on for a couple, a little different angle, but basically the same outcome. Democrats did well in 2018, right? If, if they do well in 2019, now four of the five of these states are southern states, if Democrats you know, hold their own or make progress, it will be viewed as a win. If Democrat advances from the last cycle or push back, it'll be viewed as a big Republican win. Either way, one way puts a lot of sales wind in the back of, of, of the president. And if Democrats are perceived to pick up, they flip Virginia, you know, they pick up a couple seats in Virginia, John Bell Edwards is reelected, Bevins has a problem in Kentucky, the Democrats will smell blood, go bananas. It will be a bad night for Trump. So I don't, I don't try to nationalize these off-year elections too much, but to Franklin's point, I think this one really does have a lot of implications where we are. And when in, in Virginia, one thing to watch for, and you called Democrats take both chambers or one of the chambers. Um, oh, he called both in the year uh, of our Lord. Got it. I mean, it's on the record. Oh, yeah. So Dems picked up some seats they probably shouldn't have won in Virginia last year go around. So if they defend those seats, or as you have proclaimed, expand upon those seats, that will be, I think, viewed and the narrative coming out of there will be huge night for Democrats. You know, I think they could probably lose some of those seats. And, you know, I don't know how it's reported, but I think that would be like a neutral cycle. They'd probably drop a couple of those seats. But if they expand, they, they took out, like, the Speaker of the House, didn't they, in, in the Virginia House? Well, he was retired, but they did take out a couple leadership. And right. I think in Northern Virginia in particular, as a D.C. bubble boy, you know, you've got you've got some issues up there where you got maybe one Republican left standing. And yeah. I think even that switch, uh, but you're right, and whether or not they hold some of the downstates that came kind of with the swing, yeah. I think is going to be the big question. The problem is that the, the downstate, they are, they are suffering a population dearth. And new residents of the Virginia, the blue team is registering voters by the scads, and the, 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 the state is just changing so quickly demographically that I think it's changing at a faster pace than, you know, defending this seat or that seat. I, I, I think that it's here. This would be my, my prediction, but uh, it, it'll be interesting to watch. I think our listeners really want to know who Franklin has in dog catcher in Kentucky, though. You got you got a front runner out there. Stay tuned. All right. Stay tuned. But so the, to to wrap it up. The, the final races that we didn't talk about would be Mississippi Legislature and New Jersey General Assembly. And those things are so lopsided, it doesn't really matter. Louisiana, uh, upper and lower chamber as well, are so lopsided, it doesn't really matter. So when you when you boil it all down, there's a bunch of races on the ballot. Probably the ones that are competitive or matter are, are the two the two houses, upper and lower chamber in the Virginia Legislature and then the Kentucky governor's race and then maybe we put louisiana in there as well i'm calling new jersey for the democrats that's my call here in may bold yeah bold renzel thank you guys talking at length in this pod and around the office about the independent contractor tug of war between california and the trump administration and the dynamex case and it escalated significantly this week and we are uh, fortunate that we uh, have a guest on the show today uh norm leon who's the chair of franchise and distribution litigation for dla piper uh who also represents the international franchise association has been very involved in this space and norm has joined us on the podcast norm thank you for joining us on working lunch Thanks. My pleasure to be here. So, Franklin, where do you want to begin with our, our fine counselor here? Well, let's let's take it to uh, to my blue heaven. Let's go over to uh, California. California, if, here I come. 
As labor advocates have not been able to get their wish list at the federal level these days, they have gone to the, to the states, and, and we have a lot happening in California. We have the Dynamex decision, which was, and there's been related cases, which have set up this ABC independent contractor test in California. And Norm, let's, let's just dive right into it. I mean, tell us what's been going on in California and tell us what it means for, you know, employers, for franchisors, franchisees, for uh, for anybody that uses independent contractors. What's going on in California and really across the country generally uh, is largely the result of the fact that our economy is changing and our laws have not caught up with those changes. Whether you think it's a good thing or not, the concept of employment has changed pretty dramatically over the past 60 years or so. The traditional concept of employment, getting a full-time job that you potentially stayed out until you retired, is on the decline. People are opting now for more independence in how they work, which is, of course, one of the big reasons why the gig economy continues to grow. And franchising is experiencing that same growth. There are over 730,000 franchise businesses in the United States, but the concept of franchising didn't really take off until the 1950s. The laws that determine who is an independent contractor and who is an employee are anything but new, and in most ways, unfortunately, they haven't changed at all. While there are various tests out there for answering the question about who is an independent contractor, almost all of them are based on the concept of master and servant, which literally goes back hundreds of years. The problem we're dealing with right now, particularly in California, is that certain courts and governmental agencies are trying to shoehorn these relatively new forms of business into tests based on these relatively ancient principles and that just doesn't work. That is that is good background. <laughs> that's going back. It's a yeah. deep pull. Yeah, that's um, that's a great setup, Norman. And so the previous administration at the federal level would have called this the fissured workplace, right? That we have, you know, the employees are moving away from the centers of capital, and there's all these, you know, they can't bargain with the centers of capital, and so we've got to close that gap, and so we've got to rewrite kind of the joint employer standard so that um, labor groups can get at that 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 company that's where they're coming from and i think it's fair to say that's where the state of california is coming from so tell us where things stand right now today with these cases and then the labor commissioner and i assume and you can correct me if you think i'm wrong but i think they as you just laid out that is where their head is that is where their heart is and that is where they're coming from trying to address this what they see is a uh, a modern day issue that, that is where they're trying to catch the laws up in their favor with a changing work environment. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense, and it really hits the nail on the head. And we can talk about the California decision because that, of course, is front and center right now. But I think it's important to keep in mind that the factors that ultimately led the California court to do what it did are not unique to California. There are several states out there that use the ABC test that California adopted in the Dynamics decision. And the factors that led to the adoption of that decision in California are not unique. Converting independent contractors into employees pushes withholding obligations onto employers and requires that they pay a portion of Social Security and Medicare as well as state unemployment. And I think we all know there are a lot of states out there right now looking to increase their tax base, and that's one of the things that's driving this. Also, whether you think it should be the case or not, it's simply a fact that organized labor is on the decline and has been for quite some time. Increasing the number of employees out there by transforming people that have traditionally been deemed independent contractors into employees gives organized labor opportunities to organize that it would not otherwise have. One of the interesting things about the Dynamics decision, aside from the fact that the test, some would say, potentially eliminates the franchise model, uh, is that none of the parties in that case even asked the court to adopt the ABC test. It was raised by entities like unions and employee advocates who filed briefs with the court, friends of the court briefs. Interesting. And so tell us about that California ABC test and tell us what other states, you mentioned it earlier that other states have a similar test, but what are those other states? Who's who's at the... Who's leading the the charge on this issue? Well, there's a patchwork of different laws 
out there for deciding whether someone is an independent contractor or an employee. On the federal level, you have the Fair Labor Standards Act, which has its own test. But the federal law doesn't control what the states do. And aside from California, uh, states like Massachusetts, Illinois, and Connecticut employ the ABC test. Washington has a law right now looking to adopt the ABC test. And there are other states that use the ABC test for certain concept of certain concepts of employment law. And this is where it gets really messed up and creates a lot of uncertainty for employers. Each state has its own test for deciding whether someone is an independent contractor. In fact, a lot of states have multiple tests. A state could have one test for deciding whether someone is an independent contractor for purposes of the state's wage and hour laws, another test for workers' compensation laws, and yet a third test for determining whether someone's an employee for purposes of making unemployment contributions. And if you thought this could lead to inconsistent results and uncertainty, you'd be absolutely right. Uh, a federal judge recently ruled that the drivers of a well-known rideshare company were independent contractors under one state's law. A state agency in a different state ruled that those same drivers were employees under that state's unemployment laws. And as you pointed out earlier on, just a little over a week ago at the end of April, the U.S. Department of Labor issued guidance, which stated that service providers working for a virtual marketplace company were independent contractors. It's a bit like watching a tennis match, albeit with far more serious ramifications. Indeed, indeed. If you if you're a franchisee or if you're a you know a small business that relies a lot on independent contractor relationships, man, this is this is a this is a high state game of, of tennis or ping pong that you're you're engaged in here. Your entire business model is is kind of on the line. Um, so, what is the path forward? And we're going to have to essentially fight this out in all these states and go get clarifications in in franchise law in all these states and or get some sort of federal standard or federal relief. Is that the path forward? Well, federal relief is helpful, but it doesn't necessarily solve the problem because you're still going to have state regulation and state laws that are not subject to control at the federal level. And that's really the heart of the problem here. The impact that this decision has on businesses generally and franchising in particular is really just enormous because the decisions that have come out of California go right to the heart of the business model and they create so much uncertainty as to whether the business model remains viable in California. And when you take a look at the Vasquez decision and the ramifications of that decision, you see how true that is. You know, the Ninth Circuit concluded that the fact that franchise businesses were involved did not matter at all in applying California's new ABC test for determining whether someone is an independent contractor. But that makes no sense. The first prong of California's ABC test looks at whether the putative employee is free from the control and direction of the putative employer. Every single franchisee is under some level of control by their franchisor. Franchisors are required to exercise control over their franchisees under the federal trademark laws. In fact, there are two statutes in California that control the franchise relationship that define that relationship as one where the franchisor exercises control over its franchisees' operations. And it's so difficult to reconcile the position that the Ninth Circuit just took with where California was just five years ago. I mean, if you remember, in 2014, the California Supreme Court concluded that the rules typically used in deciding whether an employment or agency relationship existed could not apply to franchise businesses because those businesses were different. Yet the Ninth Circuit just decided the opposite. And the fact that the Ninth Circuit's taken this view is obviously problematic as a lot of franchisors have a significant presence in California. But I'm concerned that the Ninth Circuit's flawed view of this is going to spread. As I mentioned, there are other states out there, several, that apply the ABC test. And there's always a concern that a bad decision will be adopted by courts in other states. Norman, I predict a prosperous future for you, my friend. I think many, many lawyers and many, many law firms are, uh, their future's looking bright, Joe. And, and professional business shrinks. Well, Norman, um, first of all, thank you very much for uh, a wealth of, of information on this. Uh, obviously, we haven't heard the last of this, and if you don't mind, we'd love to reach out to you at some point in the future and kind of revisit this and see where we are and what operators need to do, uh, and, and we, we appreciate your time. One, one thing uh, before you leave, what is your go-to restaurant in downtown Chicago for your working lunch? Oh, my go-to restaurant for a working lunch. A couple of people that know me at some restaurants upset, but I would probably say my top place would be Steak 48 or Chicago Cut. 
Oh, Ooh, Chicago, Chicago Cut. Yeah, nice. we're fans of that as well. That's a great place. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I know it all too well. Well, Norman, thanks again. Really appreciate all the good work you do for the industry, for IFA. Appreciate the guidance, and uh, we'll be back in touch soon. My pleasure, guys. Appreciate the conversation. So, Franklin, I feel like Norm just took us to third-year law school on franchise law and Workplace law. He de-lawyered it though. Yeah. He was he pretty good about that. But he went deep. So what was your what was your number one, number two takeaway? What's the key thing you want to reiterate that our audience needs to really take heed? Can I talk about the uh, Align Public Strategies Matrix? Can I do that right now? Can I have a moment? The Matrix. Bring the Matrix. the Matrix. Align Public Strategies has a matrix which grades every state in the country based on their kind of labor and employment law volatility. And we go through, it's based on a number of different criteria. You know, is there preemption? Can activists go to the ballot? What's the makeup of the state legislature? What's already in law? You know, how much volatility and change has there been recently? If I was doing a matrix for joint employer liability for franchise law for subcontractor, oh my gosh. Like California and these other states, the Illinois, the New Yorks, the Massachusetts, the Connecticut's, New Jersey's, it's tough to justify opening a whole string of franchise locations in those states just based on what he said today. Because of the level of uncertainty. I mean, it's, it's just, it's crazy. The, the amount of potential risk, I wouldn't want to be pulling the trigger on that and making that decision. That, and that's tough. There's not a lot of uh, clarity in the future either in sight. You know, I mean, there really isn't a... Uh, assertive game plan, you know, from a federal perspective to solve this anytime soon. And you've, we've talked about it before, whether or not, you know, Republicans kind of missed the boat from a legislative perspective in terms of controlling both chambers. You're not going to get anything through on this. That's for sure. Uh, You got an election cycle coming up. I get it. It's all kind of in the courts now. And, you know, that's just not, that's not a recipe for any quick, (laughs) quick uh, solution on any kind of issues. That's not a good deal. Mm -mm. But, But as Franklin noted to Mr. Yon, is a full employment act for him for the foreseeable future. He's quite a um, quite a resource, and we appreciate normally on at the LA Piper for helping us out. So, as our listeners on our, our regular listeners on the podcast know, we have spent a lot of time, and Franklin, you have been uh, really talking a lot about this EEO one form and the the pay pay rate, pay band data, and how this process has been playing out the last couple of years. And a few weeks ago, uh, we were lucky enough to be joined by Mark Friedman, the Vice President of Workforce, Workplace Policy at the Employment Policy Division of the U.S. Chamber. And we had Mark on because we thought he was a smart guy, and evidently not, because he, re- he joined us again. He signed up for another another tour of duty on Working Lunch. So it's one strike against you, Mark. But Mark, thank you for joining us again, and uh, appreciate you taking time out of your out of your busy busy calendar. And I guess we'll just start off with it has been an interesting last couple of weeks since you last joined us. Can you kind of get our audience up to speed on the latest and greatest? Sure. Thank you for having me again. I'm I'm always happy to be able to explain to people what's going on here. So when we talked last, we had just come out of having the court issue their decision, Judge Chutkin, that the EEO-1 revised form that had previously been stayed had been blocked from going into effect by the OMB. That The court had just decided that that should be reinstated, and we were all struggling with what that was going to mean and, and how that was going to happen. In addition to the problems employers are facing or will be facing with this, the EEOC, the agency that's supposed to collect this data, is also uh, having trouble. They are not currently set up to receive this data. It's all going to be done through a web portal, but that portal has not been designed. And so when the judge said, thou shalt collect this data, EEO said, uh, excuse us, judge, we're, we haven't done what we have to do to make this happen. And so that precipitated a series of hearings and and briefing exchanges and and submissions to the court to describe what has to happen and where EEOC is in their process. The net result was that the court bumped out the deadline. Originally, it was supposed to, employers were going to have to submit this data in the May 31st or, or by the May 31st deadline that is currently underway for submission of the old EEO1 form. And the court has now said 
that the new EEO-1 data has to be submitted by September 30th. So it's, it's bumped out from May 31st to September 30th, which will help, but it's still going to be a challenge, and, and employers and EEOC will still be uh, having to really get, be aggressive in, in making this happen. And one of the things you kind of you spoke to it a little bit there, Mark, but uh, you know, wanted to, to highlight a point. You know, one of the outstanding issues was what years are employers going to have to submit data for? And it was unclear until just recently here what those years are. Can you speak towards that a little bit? Yeah, great question. So following the, the plaintiff's lead in this case, the judge has decided that there should be two years of data collected as if the form had not been stayed. So if you go back and we visit where the form was in, and it was stayed in August of 2017, had that form gone forward and gone into effect, employers would have had to submit data from year 2017 and onward. So in the current setting, everyone understands data from 2018 was going to be required. The judge told EEOC that the EEOC must collect two years of data as if the form had not been stayed. The question became, which two years? And EEOC was in a position to make a decision as to whether that data should be years 2017 and 2018 or 2018 and 2019 going forward. EEOC decided to go with a 2017 and 2018 data collection, which means that by September 30th, employers will be expected to submit their pay and hours worked data for years 2017 and 2018. And so, you know, we've talked about it before and we talked about it with you, but I think at this juncture it's probably worth, you know, revisiting. What the heck are they going to do with that data? Or maybe the better way to ask the question, Mark, is what was the original intent of how that data was going to be used? And then do we think the Trump administration maybe is going to enforce, use it the same way the Obama administration did? You know, what are... Tell us about that. How's the data supposed to be used or envisioned that it would be used? Right, right. So, um, you know, you have to sort of go back into the history of this effort and this issue a little bit. It's been a longstanding quest of the advocates on the other side to be able to access pay data and use it to identify examples of discrimination. Now, in their eyes, any, I shouldn't say any, but just about any, situation where you have somebody of, of a different ethnicity or gender being paid differently than somebody else constitutes an example of discrimination. We, of course, would look at that and say, well, there's a lot of other factors that go into that question of compensation, so it's not necessarily discrimination. Seniority and, and work skills. Right, and right. seniority, skills. experience, uh, education, contribution to the enterprise, lots of different variables that employers are, in fact, allowed to use as distinctions between employees and how they're compensated. But that w was the original design of this effort or, or the, the thrust of this effort was to collect data on how employees are being paid in different ethnicities and, and, and gender categories against different types of occupational descriptions and things like that. In the original design, when the form was finalized in 2016, uh, EEOC was committed or had committed to issuing this data in the aggregate. So they would take all the different submissions and lump them together and show how people are being paid in these different pay bands and, and across the, the grid. That was really going to have no utility whatsoever with respect to identifying examples of pay discrimination. That's one of the arguments we made to OMB that helped us get the stay, which was this, this data has no usefulness whatsoever. So EEOC was going to aggregate this and release this in the aggregate. The advocates, of course, would like to get their hands on individual company data, which EEOC is not in a position to release. However, there's a little bit of a wrinkle here. The other group of employers that are required to submit this data are federal contractors. And EEOC has a relationship with an office at the Department of Labor called the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs. Long name, but the bottom line is this is the office in the DOL that oversees contractors' affirmative action requirements. And EEOC sends to OSCCP the data they collect related to federal contractors. In the OFCCP world, they are subject to FOIA requests, and the protection of this data 
or the, the ability of this data not to be released rests on OFCCP successfully relying on an exception to to the FOIA law that says they don't have to release this. It's not as secure an environment for this data, and you you know you would expect to be in court on these FOIA requests over over time. So to get back to your original question, <laughs> uh, long-winded answer. The original expectations of EEOC releasing this. I don't think are are the expectations of the current EEOC, but we don't know, and that that's right. sort of one of the unknowns in this discussion. So, so Mark, I, I think you hit on a key point there, in that you're saying that this data, companies are collecting it now, they're submitting it to the government, and that is supposed to be protected data. But this, you know, for federal contractors, there's this FOIA issue where some of the data could get out, and I suspect that, um, you know, any company that is being Force now internally to track and, and hold this data, and then and head it head it over to a federal agency that could be potentially discoverable at some point, or you know somehow those files are going to find their way out. And so you can see how there, there's cause for concern, even if they're you know this data is supposed to be protected. Without question, and companies I think are legitimately sensitive and uncomfortable about this process. And in fact, one of the requirements, as I mentioned earlier, about how EEOC had to put in place certain, had to design the web portal to receive this data, one of the questions that they have to address is how they're going to protect this and what the security protocols will be for receiving this data. That's one of the things that they've got to design in order to, to turn on the web portal for this data to come in. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, it's very much a legitimate question uh, and one which EEOC understands they have to address and they're trying to address it as, as they can in the, in the time frame they have. So let's let's touch back to one other thing you mentioned. We have Janet Dillon is, is being confirmed. We're going to have a quorum. She is confirmed. Uh, she was confirmed as of yesterday. There we go. And so potentially the Trump administration now can look at this rule kind of moving forward and potentially do something in that space. Can you speak to that a little bit, yeah. look in the crystal ball and tell us what, what you think may be coming down the pike in the future? Well, yeah. My crystal ball is very cloudy with ex with the exception of one very clear point. No one should expect the EEOC to do anything before September 30th. The idea behind collecting the two years of data up front was to clear the decks for EEOC to be able to work on this form after September 30th as opposed to having the collection continue past the September into the next year for the 2019 data. So. If there's an advantage to having these two years of data collected uh, together at the beginning, the advantage is that then EEOC will have more of an opportunity to work on this form and make changes or do whatever they think they can do with it after September 30th. But just because they have a quorum, nobody should be should believe that that's going to change the question of September 30th. So I just want to be abundantly clear on that. And Mark, that's that's for our audience. You know, that kind of managing what that, you know, the next six months may look like, uh, is is vitally important. And you you really drove that home and appreciate that. There there are more developments coming. So by all means, you should check back. One of the things that has happened is the federal government has in fact finally indicated their intent to appeal. They have not yet filed an appeal, they've just filed an intent to appeal. So there is likely more activity coming. Again, no one should expect that uh, appeal process to disrupt the requirement of September 30th. But um, there may in fact be more wrinkles coming on this whole issue. Listen, we're going to wrap this up, but again, thank you uh, for taking the time to join us and walk our audience through this. and. We reserve the right to give you another opportunity to demonstrate your bad judgment and rejoin us again at some point in the future. The worst judgment I show is to get on your program, then I'm, I'm probably doing pretty well. I like it. I like it. So one last quick question. You know, we often have uh, food in the, in the pod room and, um, you know, have a working lunch. When you're stuck at your desk in Washington, D.C., what is, what is your go-to working lunch? <laughs> a couple uh, restaurants near my office that I, I favor. Um, usually simple casual food he's a man of few words he's he holding his cards close to the people. vest casual yeah. food he's a man of people he's a okay. chamber he's a man of people all right you know i mix right. it up oh, with the white house press corps who are usually at the same place as i go to lunch name dropper yeah. shameless name dropping <laughs> all right mark thanks again sir and we will uh we'll visit soon 
So it's quite clear that our, our friend Mark knows this subject matter pretty good. Joe Rinzel, what's your take on all that? I just think there's a lot of risk, you know, and, and it's pretty obvious. And you've got a lot of, uh, you know, I get the whole FOIA and this this data is supposed to be kept uh, confidential. I think there's some natural reactions that'll happen, um, whether or not you got state activity trying to get it um, done. We had the whole kind of debate around CEO pay, which which comes from this type of data. Um, that was a little different in the states, but it, you know turns into a tax. There's obviously risk there. It's but, reputational and the point, risk. And the point being is now that the feds are requiring the collection of this data, states and locals can go in and build their own infrastructure around it, require submission of it or disclosure of it or a right. tax attached or, to it. Or, or in, investor relations. I mean, you've got, you know, we saw the stories of Nike and other brands that went and did these kind of studies internally to understand what they were doing and where they were coming up short. And if you have this data and you're not acting on it, to correct whatever perceived wrong is, you're setting yourself up for another reputational if you, challenge. If you have the data and you're not working to address it, then potentially you're in a more precarious situation than if you never had the data collected. So, and you have to talk to your counsel about how to handle that. But you know, there have been companies that have dove into this to start leveling pay. You mentioned Nike, and the cost has been outrageous. Has been tremendous. I, I don't remember if it was Nike or one of the others, but essentially like a third or half of their workforce, they had to change the pay level um, of employees based on the information they and, found. And you're not reducing pay to anyone. You're, you're increasing. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that's there the no problem. Cuts. Right. Yeah. You know, this is a tricky, tricky issue. And um, the EOC, I suspect, over time is going to redo this. Um, 2019's data collection and submission, I suspect, will probably look different than 2017 and 2018. That remains to be seen. But now this is a marker set, and companies are going to have to collect this. And we're headed down this path whether we like it or not, and we better be smart about how we, how we handle it and how we deal with it moving forward. All right, and it's time for the legislative scorecard where we go around the country and update you on the key legislative and regulatory developments of the week. And as always, we start with wages. So let's go to you, Mr. Renzel. Yeah, so on wages, we got Connecticut, the House uh, approved legislation that would increase that minimum wage up to $15 an hour by 2023. We're thinking the Senate's likely to go ahead uh, and approve that increase. They adjourn around early June, so we got a little bit of time there to keep watching it. Some important things for listeners, just the tip wage would remain at uh, six thirty-eight an hour in the state. Um, they're differentiating between waiters and bartenders. The bartender would go wage would go to eight twenty-three, um, and they also are instituting a ninety-day training wage for sixteen and seventeen-year-olds at eighty-five percent of the minimum wage. So, some additional stats there uh, to keep an eye on in Connecticut. Yeah, and a couple of the things I'd note on Connecticut, Joe. First, the, the decoupling of the waiter-tipped wage and the bartender-tipped wage, I think that's the first of its kind in the country. So that's something to kind of watch out for that may get picked up and go elsewhere in the future. And the other thing you mentioned, we're coming towards the end of session here in June 5th. And one of the other things hanging out there is paid leave. And the governor and the legislature are pretty far apart in that. Uh, they seem to be on, on the same page or close on, on minimum wage, but it's unclear if they're going to sort out paid leave in time. So that kind of closes out Connecticut. Take us back up the road there, if you would, Mr. Joe, to Vermont. And in Vermont, we've got uh, similar $15 an hour by 2024 legislation, but it has stalled. They're you know, still negotiating. They're scheduled to adjourn here in a couple weeks. Um, I think May 17th is the date. So just because it's stalled doesn't mean it's dead, but um, we're going we're gonna to continue to watch. We might see a smaller increase spread over a longer timeline, some different business sizes. Uh, we're going to have to keep an eye on that uh, over, the end, uh, over the next couple weeks here and have an additional report once they conclude. Big week on paid leave. I think more so than any other topic, and that may be because we have Mother's Day coming down on us. So the Democrat Congress, with Mother Day's approaching, held a full committee hearing, and, and it was reported this is the first time that there's been a full committee hearing on the issue of paid leave ever, which seems hard to believe, but you know that's, that's what the reporting says. House Ways and Means Committee had Democrats and Republicans and outside groups testify. This really just provided an opportunity for all those groups on both sides of the aisle that have been pushing their proposals 
to get back out there and talk about the issue again. We continue to talk about in this podcast how this issue is just marching down the way and, and continues to gain steam. Um, I suspect this is a momentary flare-up, and it will fall out of the, the headlines for a little while again. But, you know, the drumbeat continues. Moving across the country to California, everyone will probably remember the governor weeks into taking office announced that he would make California's plan the most generous in the country by expanding it to six months for paid family leave. And he has walked that back a little bit. Now he's looking at a two-week expansion. This was in a revised budget proposal this week. That's four months total. He does, however, want to set up a task force that will get him to his six-month number over the next few years. Jumping back across the country now to Maine, and this has been an ongoing issue, but the Senate has approved the bipartisan legislation for 40 hours of paid sick leave for workers in the state. This has a preemption in it. That's why it's bipartisan. It's probably going to pass through the House and be approved by the governor. It has to go back to the House because there were changes in the Senate. And this will take care of some of the local mandates across the state or potential local mandates. In fact, Portland, Maine, this, this week decided to vote down a local paid sick leave requirement because it looked pretty much certain that the state is going to act on this issue. Nevada. We keep talking about Nevada. They are also coming down to the end of their legislative session as well. And a Senate committee there heard the paid leave bill this week. It updated the language. Uh, It allows for 40 hours of sick leave per year. It's likely this is going to make it through and it's going to get approved by the governor. It's just a matter of timing now as, as things are winding down. The governor in New Hampshire vetoed legislation that would require employers to offer 12 weeks of paid family leave. He did it with a big fat red pen and he wrote across uh, the veto, he said, no income tax in big red ink. And that is what he has been saying all along. This is a 0.5% payroll tax, which the governor is characterizing as an income tax and he doesn't want to put that burden on residents. So this thing probably does not have the votes to override the veto. That's a hundred vote supermajority that's needed in the House, and this passed the House with around 92 votes. So it's probably dead for this session, but we'll have to wait and see. Whew, long one. Last one, moving up north to Vermont. The Senate amended the House-approved paid leave legislation there. They tweaked it a little bit, cutting down in the cost of the program by almost half. And what they did is they removed the, the requirement for sick leave and they split the parental leave benefit. So the mother and the father both don't get to take paid parental leave. They can split it in half among them or one can take it. They can they can basically distribute that that leave amount among between the two of them. Because the program is not voluntary, the governor is likely to veto it even though the legislature has made great efforts to to cut the cost of the program. But uh, we'll have to wait and see. You know, then the legislature may try to override a veto if he vetoes it. We don't know if he he has the vote. So a lot to watch as Vermont continues to play out. All right, Mr. Renzel, let me take a break, catch my breath. Let's go to you for scheduling. On scheduling, we're still watching Texas. Uh, You have a lot going on on that issue as they're looking to preempt localities uh, from paid leave initiatives and ordinances, scheduling mandates and other benefits. Um, There are some issues that have come up associated with uh, concerns from the LGBT community about discriminatory, non-discriminatory ordinances at the local level, whether or not those get preempted or not as well. You know, we're still watching Texas, but the news this week is that a House committee did advance the preemption on scheduling bill but they have not um, addressed the paid leave bill. And we, we expect um, some more uh, complications throughout that process, but we'll keep an eye on it. So a couple of little developments in the labor policy front this week. You know, in the U.S. House, we had congressional Democrats introducing the Protecting the Right to Organize Act. This is basically the union wish list. It's going nowhere, but it does put a marker out for the 2020 candidates of what the, the top items of unions are. It just makes it easier to organize into a union and makes it easier for them to run campaigns. So the other thing that happened this week, kind of in the talk front and not in the action front, um, was related to immigration. 
and the White House is preparing to release their new uh, immigration proposal. This is being headed up by Jared Kushner, and it's reported this week that that will include a national e-verify requirement. That is not that surprising, but it's something employers need to pay attention to. Finally, EOC, which we talked about earlier, but it's worth mentioning again, the agency is going to appeal the decision by the judge that reinstated that Obama era requirement. So this saga is going to continue um, and labor policy segment will continue to be packed. But let's move along now and let's take it to the tax front. Mr. Renzel, what's going on in Oregon? So in Oregon, you've got an ongoing effort for several cycles now to try and pass a gross receipts tax. It's led largely by the Democrats who sit in the majority over there. Uh, The minority Republicans are fighting the effort. Um, They're going so far as to boycott proceedings and prevent, uh, you know, committees from reaching quorum. Um, And so a lot of intense tactics there in Oregon uh, being displayed. Uh, The measure would actually need a three-fifths supermajority of both chambers to be enacted. So that's why the Republicans have leverage, even though they're in the minority. Um, But we'll be keeping an eye on that for sure, because it's obviously got a big tax impact on some of the folks there that have operations in Oregon. And finally, to close things out, we take it over to San Francisco to to the my blue heaven over there. San Francisco this week banned cashless stores. This wouldn't be that notable because San Francisco kind of does crazy stuff, but Philadelphia has done this. We've seen this in New Jersey. Now we've got it on the West Coast. This is a trend line. Uh, this is going to continue. And the argument here is that you know cashless stores discriminate against low-income residents that are you know unbanked or you know don't, don't have credit cards. So this is uh, this is a trend line. This is something to look out for. And that's it for this week for the Legislative Scorecard. We will talk to you next week. So guys, according to National Restaurant Association data, Valentine's Day is the second busiest restaurant day of the year. Any guesses as to what is the number one busiest restaurant day of the year? Joe Renzel? Got to go with Mama's Day. Correct, sir. I'm, su- I'm kind of surprised by that, actually. I'm used to the, the we, we do the breakfast in bed thing, you know. On That's, Mother's Day? Yeah. Well, you're when you're a little kid, but when you're older, you take your mom out to breakfast. Yeah. Right you know your lunch. wife is also a mother, right? you got to, like, do something for yeah, her. Yeah, no, I do oh, breakfast okay. in bed All for right. her. All right, my gotcha. Mom, my mother lives in North Carolina, so, mm-hmm. you know. I don't. Joe Renzel, you're, you're, you live very close to your mom. Tell me what Mother's Day 2019 will be for the famous Mrs. Renzel. Mrs. Renzel, a loyal podcast listener. She's yes. coming back into the fold this week. She took the last okay. couple of weeks off, okay. but she's back Why in. Because she knows her baby boy wasn't on there, man. She Darling doesn't Joey. You know, Darling she's got to listen for the talent. She's got to go for the talent. But we do a little... Baby uh, bubble boy. We do a little... Uh, baby bubble boy. That's good. We do a little church in the morning with mom, and then we might do a little brunch. And then, uh, you know, the afternoon, we try and get everybody together. So is, that, is that the National Cathedral? No, the, uh, the her, her church is actually a Catholic University of America. Uh, uh, nice. You know, they got a little Shrine chapel up there, seven, Caldwell yeah. Hall. I've been going there since I was about four that years old. I graduated nice. in grad school. Yeah. National Shrine, the Immaculate Conception. No, it's a nice place, beautiful that spot. Lightning strike coming, coming hey. through there. Hey, so what? So are you taking mom for like a re- restaurant brunch or is it in home brunch? How's it gonna, how's it gonna roll? We haven't quite planned it. I've been on the road a couple days here. Yeah, so. wow. like yeah, I'm on it. I'm on okay. it. Don't worry. Wow. You know, mom's. You know, she just wants to spend time. That's all she needs. She doesn't necessarily have to have all the bells and whistles. Any gifts for mom? Yeah, I mean, well, you're not displo- displo- well, you know, I don't here. want to surprise anything. We're gonna send some flowers. Might you know, mom likes to get. Um, you know, her favorite gift is actually donations to other service projects across the world the and country. Fund. Yeah, you stuff like that. I don't want to spoil anything, but that's usually where uh, where we go with my, that. My one. mom was very, you know, adamant that no one could get her gifts, and she was very stoic. You know, good old fashioned. You know, Irish Catholic, very stoic and all this kind of stuff. But if you didn't, yeah, it's a setup. Oh my God! Yeah. It was it was cold. It was a cold winter had come. Yeah, so <laughs> winter had come. Game Mother, of Thrones guys over here. Yeah, yeah, he loves it. It was very stressful. So. Happy Mother's Day, Mrs. Renzel. Mama Renzel, happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, uh, Mrs. Francine Renzel also. We just got to make sure there's two. And all the other moms out there.